turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to another edition of Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Give it a try. Call them. Talk to them. Find out what's in it for you. LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. going to tell you a little story here before we welcome our guest on. In June 2020, a gentleman by the name of Gordon Klein, a longtime accounting lecturer at UCLA, made the news. He made news because a student emailed him asking him to grade black students more leniently in the wake of the, quote, unjust murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. So Klein, this UCLA lecturer, responded, and this is part of his statement, thanks for your suggestion in your email below that I give black students special treatment given the tragedy in Minnesota. Do you know the names of the classmates that are black? How can I identify them since we've been having online classes only? Are there any students that may be of mixed parentage, such as half black, half Asian? What do you suggest I do with respect to them? A full concession or just half? He went on. Remember that Martin Luther King famously said that people should not be evaluated based on the color of their skin. Do you think that your request would run afoul of MLK's admonition? And he signed it. And this where... This is where the story gets really bigger. Klein's response, and I'm reading from an article here, Klein's response enraged students. They organized a petition to remove him that quickly gained nearly 20,000 signatures. I'm sure a huge portion of those signatures had no idea what they were signing, by the way, on a campus, resulting in the professor being placed on leave and banned from campus. But the story got national attention and a counter petition signed by more than 76,000 people demanded his reinstatement. In less than three weeks, Klein was allowed to return to the classroom. Yet his encounters with what UCLA calls equity, diversion and inclusion were far from over. Just under a year later, so less than a year later, Klein, the author of a textbook on ethics and accounting, was up for a merit raise. For the first time in his 40 years at UCLA, Klein said he had to submit a statement on equity, diversity, and inclusion. UCLA had adopted this as a promotion requirement in 2019, a promotion requirement, and now demands that all faculty members express how they will advance these principles in their work and how their mentoring and advising helps those, quote, from underrepresented and underserved populations, unquote. Klein inquired of the EDI office just what groups of students they meant. When they failed to reply, he wrote a dissent he made available, which reads in part, I find it abhorrent for the university to encourage faculty members to classify and prioritize students based on their group identities. I intend to continue helping all students equally, regardless of their backgrounds. Although his previous teaching evaluations were sterling and he had received prior merit raises, this one was declined. Klein has brought suit against UCLA. 
the struggle between Klein and UCLA represents a major shift in the mission of higher education in America. The principles, commonly known as diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, are meant to sound like a promise to provide welcome and opportunity to all on campus. And to the ordinary American, those values sound virtuous and unobjectable unobjectionable, excuse me, but many working in academia increasingly understand that they instead imply a set of controversial political and social views. And then in order to advance their careers, they must demonstrate fealty to vague and ever expanding DEI demands and to the people who enforce them, failing to comply or expressing doubt or concern means risking career ruin. One more paragraph. In a short time, DEI imperatives have spawned a growing bureaucracy that holds enormous power within universities. The ranks of DEI vice presidents, deans, and officers are ever-growing. Princeton has more than 70 administrators devoted to DEI. Ohio State has 132. They now take part in dictating things, dictating things like hiring, promotion, tenure, and research funding. Those are the words I've just read uh, from an article by John Saylor. This appeared in the Free Press, Barry Weiss's publication, How DEI is Supplanting Truth as the Mission of American Universities. An obsession with diversity, equity, and inclusion threatens students, professors, and the very credibility of higher education in the United States. The author is John Saylor. Uh... (laughs) He's a fellow at the National Association of Scholars. He tells this story, and we dig into it with him next. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world... Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. John Saylor, welcome. It's great to have you. I I told our audience about your piece in the free press, which I found mind boggling. And um, I also talked about this UCLA professor story. And when I read about DEI and this bind that it is putting students and professors in at the university level, I wonder how far gone is this? Is the toothpaste so far out of the tube that we're done? What do you think? You know, it's interesting because when people think about – kind of campus free speech issues, when they think about uh, political correctness run amok, usually uh, a lot of people will talk about college students making demands on their universities or professors saying something crazy or uh, individual actors. And what I try to highlight in my article is that we've kind of passed that stage. We're no longer at the stage where Uh, students necessarily shout people down, although that can happen sometimes. The main source of um, this kind of 
illiberalism that we see on campus is now primarily institutional policy, policies that are written down and that usually come under the umbrella of DEI. So when you ask, uh, you know, how far gone are we? What I would say is that the the campus politics of six years ago that uh, kind of made news all over the place is now just institutional policy. And I think that's really concerning. Is that a product of institutions responding to the campus politics and trying to stay ahead of it? Yeah, I would say that there are two sides to this. So for a long time, universities and other institutions of higher education have pushed for a particular understanding of diversity, a particular understanding of social justice that I think really ultimately had an impact on the way students were taught. So prior to 2015, prior to 2010, there was a a generally accepted uh, way of viewing social justice there, the, the emphasis on diversity was uh, certainly well established and it was understood in a very narrow way as merely uh, uh, racial diversity and racial diversity in, often for its own sake. And students imbibed this in a way that, uh, uh, you know, they, they really took it to heart. But that, that meant that students ended up asking the, these institutions, why aren't you doing more? And a great example of that is this organization called uh, uh, white coats for Black Lives, which oh, started yeah. in 2014. But, uh, you know, not only was this organization far more radical than most universities uh, uh, have have conventionally been, but it also effectively told a lot of medical schools, listen, you need to make these massive changes. And a lot of medical schools ended up uh, establishing things like task task forces to integrate social justice into the curriculum. So there's kind of a swinging motion where at first universities created these diversity offices and these diversity policies that affected the way students were taught. And that might not be the only reason students became kind of radicalized, but it was certainly one of the reasons that they became radicalized. And uh, many of these these radical students then uh, solicited policies that that universities accepted and embraced and have now uh, you know now they've written this this kind of radicalism into their in into their basic operating principles and you can say oh well this just ends at the university doors but no it doesn't because if you have white coats for black li- uh, lives and i want to get into that a little bit more it then filters out into the medical community and uh, we've seen some of these med schools demand when a student is graduating to sort of recite this proclamation of all the things they are biased against and accept their responsibility and all of that. And it just, it, I asked my 17 year old son, he's college bound, you know, what if that were you? What if you had to sit there and repeat all that in order to become a doctor? And he said, I'd do it. And then I'd go be a doctor and forget about it. Well, I just feel like, okay, then what next? What will they ask for next? What will they ask for next? And academia isn't always right. And I think when you have a, an organization called White Coats for Black Lives, you're immediately assuming, oh, these are doctors. They're good people. They're, you know, they're virtuous. They just want to save lives. Give us a little bit more on this organization and, and how they operate, what they do, what their goals are. So this organization was founded really uh, in 2014 as the Black Lives Matter movement uh, 
picked up and, and began. And for a couple of years, uh, between 2014 and 2020, it was active as a student chapter organization. By the time 2020 rolled around, they had uh, more than 70 chapters at medical schools all across the country. Uh, and then, of course, the summer of 2020 happened, and all across the country, uh, it, activists took advantage of that moment to uh, call for policies that um, institutions had a really hard time saying no to, but at the same time were, were, were way more um, extreme than First of all, than than we had really ever seen at institutions, but second of all, much more extreme than I think where most Americans would would fall. I, I think that's certainly the case. And so, this organization they released uh, a, a policy document explaining the kinds of things that they believe, and it's basically the full gamut of progressive identity politics written down. So they say that they believe the only way to solve for health inequities. Uh, uh, involves a major transformation of society that needs to include prison abolition. It needs to include police, uh, 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 defunding the police. Right. Uh, they say that they draw from the, the uh, black feminist socialist tradition uh, and, and pretty much any watchword of identity politics yeah. that you can imagine is contained in that document, which is really significant because when White Coats for Black Lives uh, um, really made its push to change medical school policies, medical school after medical school agreed to their their uh, list of demands. And not only that, they often invited students from the organization to come sit down at the table and craft these far-reaching DEI plans. I'm just not sure what defunding the police has to do with doctors. Um, so we'll get into this a little bit more. Quick break. John Saylor, our guest, the piece, if you get the free press, great. If you don't, I highly recommend it. But you can follow him also on uh, on Twitter, John, S-A-I-L-E-R. Uh, how DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is supplanting truth as the mission of American universities. More in a second. So these are crazy times, right? Insane times. And you got to look in your cupboard and go, what if I ran out of fill in the blank? And you don't want to do that. But supply chain issues, the economy, all the uncertainty around us suggests that maybe I should have some food on standby. Uh, some people call this survival food. And there is a company I'd like to recommend. It's 4patriots.com, the number 4patriots.com. This is not ordinary food. We've got Beautiful breakfasts, lunches, dinners, hand-packed right in a family-owned company right in the United States of America, employing over 200 Americans. Delicious meals that are easy to prepare. And right now, go to 4patriots.com, use the code Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, one L there, and take 10 10% off your first purchase of anything in the store, including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous year-long guarantee after you order, plus free shipping on orders over 97 bucks. They're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans veterans and families. Just go to fourpatriots.com, use the code Michelle to get 10% off. That's fourpatriots.com, the number four, patriots.com. Code Michelle, start building your stockpile today. 
So, John, this reminds me also of the L.A. school district when they wanted to come back to the classroom after COVID or during the pandemic. They That union wrote out a list of demands that included things like what you're talking about, abolishing prisons, defunding police, things that have nothing to do with getting your kid into the classroom. Similarly, as you just noted, with white coats for black lives, demanding universities adopt these policies or say, we're going to, this is what we'd like to do. It's, it's, is it going too far to say this is cultural Marxism? Um, I might not use that exact term, but I understand why, why you would gravitate toward it because uh, the, the, the way that these organizations operate really do um, have a, have a lot of resonances with, past radical movements, including, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the earlier, earlier Marxist revolutions. And you can see that pretty clearly when you look at what they actually advocate, uh, uh, the, the changes that they actually advocate. So for instance, one of the medical schools that, uh, responded to white coats for black lives with a, a list of policy changes was uh, University of Michigan's medical school, Michigan Medicine. And, um, you know, the, the organization, black, White Coats for Black Lives, they said, we would like you to institute a curriculum based on uh, the principles of intersectionality and critical race theory. What did the medical school do? They said, okay, we are going to institute a curriculum uh, and hire trained critical race theorists to come in. And uh, uh, that will now be a part of our required curriculum for all students. They even said that for their medical residents, the curriculum will be based on Ibram Kendi's work, which, uh, um, you know, is a, is a really telling uh, statement of values. And, you know, when, when it, it, this isn't just like, uh, uh, an instance where I'm labeling something critical race theory because it kind of has some of the themes that were elucidated by critical race theorists. This is literally saying we should take these critical race theory scholars whose work they will acknowledge is rooted in Marxism, yes, is rooted yes. in Marx, uh, uh, and 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 they say we should put this right into medical students' curricula. I mean that that that's a really remarkable move by any medical school, yeah. but it's actually not that uncommon, which is which is what's crazy. That, that crazy is a good word because, again, what does this have to do with medicine? What I want from a surgeon, from a general physician, from any t- kind of medical provider is for them to solve my medical issue. And to suggest that, that critical race theory has anything to do with anyone's uh, health situation is mind-boggling to me. But this is a, a movement, I think, to infiltrate all professions. So we're going to probably see this moving into law schools. I I can only imagine. And I just wonder what this, what we have to do to stop it. Because it it seems to me (laughs) to be ruining things. Um, You know, there's a, I I interviewed a nurse a few months ago. She had a 39 year career and at her hospital, there was a new policy where she had to take this, you know, this DEI test basically online and at the end, click a box that said, I acknowledge I am biased. I am culturally, you know, this and that. And she said, I'm not clicking this box. And they said, come on, just click the box. If you want to keep your job, you just got to click the box. She said, I'm not clicking the box. Because then what are you going to want to ask me next to click the box on? Well, she lost her job. Now, she ended up finding other work, thank goodness for her. But I'm, I don't know that many people are going to have the courage to say, I'm not clicking that box. 
So what do you make of this requirement to say, yes, you know, I I am all of these things that you say that I am, even though you don't believe that you are? You know, that's a that's a really important point that I think is worth dwelling on pretty much in in uh, any discipline that I looked at while I was reporting for this piece. There were uh, there I could find uh, kind of written requirements to uh, express your commitment to these vague values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So this happens with faculty jobs in yeah. every discipline. So I just published an article about how biologists were required. Uh, I've published two articles in the last two weeks about how biologists have been required to submit. Uh, statements on their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how uh, the, the departments that solicited those statements heavily weighed them throughout the, the application process. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal, and that's in a discipline you really wouldn't expect to, to find these requirements. But really, what I would emphasize is that these kinds of requirements are everywhere. They're required, for instance, you mentioned law schools. They're uh, uh, now, in order for law students to make uh, law review, many law schools require them to submit a diversity statement. This is, hap- this is happening at Yale Law School. It's happening at Georgetown. It's happening at Penn. Uh, uh, I've been told that it's basically the, the, the norm for what used to be called the top 14 law schools to require these diversity statements to get into uh, a role where you are taking part in editing um, you know, major legal scholarship. Right. The same goes for uh, funding in in scientific research. The national, or um, rather, the, the the largest funder of physical sciences in the nation is the Department of Energy. And now, the Department of Energy, for every grant it gives, requires the the grant recipient to write a statement about how equity is a an intrinsic part of the research they are conducting. And now some of these, it's it's often hard to tell how these evaluations are actually assessed, but at the very least, if they're assessed at all, that is a major statement of priority. And it's also uh, um, in in many cases, a pretty obvious political litmus test because of course, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, imply a very narrow set of ideological viewpoints. It's, It's pretty obvious at this point that they're not just uh, uh, kind of neutral values that no smart, sane person would object to. They imply a set of values that that instead uh, uh, are contentious, controversial, and that many people would object to. But now they're becoming a requirement for a, for jobs pretty much across uh, across academia and beyond. Yeah, what you just said is really important. Diversity, equity, inclusion. It's a narrow set of sort of radical beliefs. I want to dig into that more in just a second, because this is what's so important. I think when people hear diversity, equity, and inclusion, it all sounds very virtuous. It all sounds lovely until you really dig into what it actually means, because equity and equality are not the same thing. I think the the, the word equity has suddenly had a change. Either it's had a change in definition or they don't realize what they're saying and where it leads. Maybe they do. I don't know. More on that right after this. How much money do you have? Seriously, not just in your pocket, 
in your piggy bank, but what do you have reserved for your retirement? This is so important. And everyone at every age should start thinking about saving for their retirement. But the issue becomes, oh my gosh, where do I stash that money? Because the stock market's all over the place. You know, I don't know what that's going to do next. Savings account doesn't yield me very much. What about precious metals? When I shop for precious metals, I trust legacy precious metals. And that's the only place that I trust. And I encourage you to go and ask them all of your questions. They are uh, trustworthy. They are knowledgeable and they are open to any question that you might have. Think about taking some of your money and tucking it away in a nice little comfortable bed that's only going to grow your money over time. That's what precious metals do for your retirement. See, gold is a hedge against inflation. It protects against a weakening dollar and Goodness knows the dollar seems to always be weakening. So get in touch with my friends at LPM, Legacy Precious Metals, and do it while there's still time. Remember 2008? Those who invested in gold saw big gains. Others lost their retirements. So go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, download your free investor's guide, or speak to one of their IRA experts. So easy. 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. Or log on at LegacyPMInvestments.com. So John, I want you to get back to this thing that you just said, that diversity, equity, inclusion is a narrow set of values. That How, how would you define that? Like if you were to describe that narrow set of values to people um, who don't know about the, the real substance of DEI, what would you say? I think you have to look at how they're applied in practice. Um, And so I I brought up those diversity statements. It's interesting to take a look at the way that, uh, as far as we know, those statements are evaluated. And UC Berkeley um, happened to publish a rubric for evaluating faculty members' contributions to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. They add they add the the B to the acronym. Oh, now and, there's another letter. This is like the LGBTQRST <laughs> movement. I mean, now they're adding more letters to this. Okay, go ahead. And belonging. So they they um you know this rubric is very telling because at one point it says candidates should get a low score if they and this is a direct quote, if they if they say they intend to ignore the varying backgrounds of their students and treat everyone the same. Now, that that to me is uh, um, problematic on a couple of levels. First of all, I think that that's a good ideal to try to treat everyone the same. I agree. But second of all, even if I even if for some reason I thought you should not do that, uh, uh, and I thought that uh, you should you should not treat everyone the same. It's still the case that m- many people on very smart, principled grounds would say, "I believe that." And so it's a it's it's functionally a a litmus test written into the diversity statement evaluation rubric. But but here's the thing: I think that illustrates the broader point about DEI because that that's relatively uncontroversial for people who work as DEI officers or advocates of DEI. I've even had people try to defend that part of the rubric, uh, um, you know, in conversation with me. Basically, what it comes down to is a commitment to race consciousness. 
And I think the the concept of race consciousness is perhaps the the most fundamental uh, um, the the most fundamental element of DEI. You know, DEI can include a lot of different ideological components. It generally suggests a very narrow uh, uh, emphasis on the the categories of race and gender and sex. And I think that, um, you know, you can extrapolate from that all sorts of views on, say, you know, transgender issues or on public policy issues like defunding the police. But at the very least, I, I think that DEI... Uh, implies this idea of race consciousness that it is important that race is very important that it is important to acknowledge or uh, uh, to to prioritize race in in virtually any kind of policy decision uh, and rather than I striving for a world in which you treat everyone the same and you don't take uh, you know their their racial categories as as very important you should emphasize the important of those importance of those categories and to what end like what is this to what end what how does this help what does this do for people yeah you know i think that um some of that comes back to the to this understanding of equity where uh you know there are there are uh a lot of well-documented uh, disparities in all sorts of ways that we we um, measure well-being, and those those are real. Um, you know, in in a lot, according to a lot of measures, uh, African Americans are uh, you know do do poorly in some some areas. You know, they 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 suffer from different health problems that other populations don't. They suffer from or they they have. Uh, you know, uh, admissions, uh, college admissions uh, um, scores that are that are different than what you would see for for white people or Asian people, and so one of the impulses that I think drives the the uh, whole the the whole enterprise of DEI is to try to correct that by essentially fiat. To try to correct that by saying, first of all, this is a priori evidence of racism that these disparities exist. And second of all, because we strive for equity and not equality, what we really need to do is strive for, uh, uh, is, um, you know, through policy, arrive at a place where everyone is proportionally represented, even if that's not, uh, you know, even if we have to redefine what academic excellences or re or, or jettison the concept of merit, uh, or, or simply, uh, you know, choose to treat people differently based on their backgrounds. I, I think that that the the idea that we should not treat everyone the same just flows out of the idea that we should we should actively try to correct for every disparity that exists because every disparity is a priori uh, uh, evidence of racism, and that's something that. I don't accept. I don't. I don't think that that's actually true. And I think that in the process of trying to do that, what they're really doing is, uh, um, you know, doing great damage to uh, uh, all all of our institutions. And no you know, I pay attention to higher education. Certainly, great damage to our institutions of higher education. No question about it. I mean, what are we preparing people for? And by the way, I, I you know the the achievement gap in. I live here in Minnesota uh, in the inner city schools is massive. And I'm, I'm still curious as to why 
so little effort is made to raise the standards of those schools rather than just live with what they are. You know, they want to throw more money at everything. That isn't always the answer. It's how money is spent. Uh, but it's it, it it angers me because more than anything, John, I feel like it says to people of color, you are less than, you are not as capable of, and therefore we're going to lower the bar in order for you to catch up. And I would be insulted. <laughs> you know, I would be insulted by that. I grew up in an Hispanic household and I'm, I'm a, I'm a girl, I'm a woman. And so, you know, to, if anyone had ever told me, we've got to, we're going to make some exceptions for you because you're female or you're Hispanic. I wouldn't have accepted that. I don't want my kids to accept that. Um, so this is so disheartening. You know, later on this week, we're going to be talking to Ilya Shapiro of the Manhattan Institute, who, along with Chris Rufo, is working on a way to get actual legislative change uh, in effect for to minimize or disrupt this DEI. I, sorry, I, this this umbrella movement, this. There are words that are coming to mind that I probably shouldn't utter, so I'm not going to. But um, how, in your assessment, do you think that's going to go? This certainly isn't going to be a fast fix. There is no fast fix for this. But are there solutions? Are you optimistic that there are solutions? Well, uh, the my organization, the organization I work for, the National Association of Scholars, uh, uh, was somewhat involved in in um, crafting the the Manhattan Institute. Uh, model legislation we were we were kind of close collaborators in that project and uh you know i think that that's an important first step whatever solution comes it's not going to come from within academia there the incentives are not there for people to stand up against this kind of uh um, overreach and they're not there not only because there's social pressure uh, uh against doing so you know if you're a professor and you say that you we should not add you know a statement on equity to our department's webpage, uh, you 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 will most likely ostracize yourself from most academic departments. Um, but you know that's that's social ostracization is is uh, kind of the 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 punishment of a, a past era now. You know, a lot of universities require that you demonstrate your commitment to, to DEI in order to get promotion or tenure. So that's, there's a very real possibility that uh, you could risk your your job security by standing up. And I think a lot of administrators are in the same position, either either by force of kind of social pressure or by uh, um, kind of official policy, which means you need that outside pressure. You, we desperately need for every state that can do it to to uh, place immense pressure on the DEI bureaucracy and on, um, you know, people like university trustees and university regents. States appoint those uh, those positions and they right. appoint them to provide a certain level of accountability because these are public universities and they should they should be governed in a way that. Uh, um you know, reflects in in some sense the will of the public, and they certainly don't do that right now. I think whenever people hear about what I report on, uh, uh, overwhelmingly they think it's crazy. Overwhelmingly, yeah. I think normal people think that this stuff is crazy, and 
absolutely states should 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 make these kinds of efforts. But I'll say that's only the beginning because what has happened in higher education is deeply, deeply entrenched. And even if we get the best case scenario with every, you know, every line of the Manhattan Institute legislation passed, uh, there will still be great, you know, substantial problems with universities. So I think that uh, lawmakers should view this not as the, 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 the full package, but as the minimum, the starting minimum for university. This uh, making someone write something that they don't believe in order to keep a job seems to me to be illegal. I I would think that that would be illegal. This is not the America that I was born into, and I don't want it to be the America I die in or that my kids have to live in. I really don't. This bothers me deeply. John Saylor, I loved your piece. I hope you'll come back again and discuss this more with us and all the other. Keep doing your reporting. It's so important, and I appreciate it so much. Uh, I, I wish you the very best as you dig into all of this and reveal it to everyone for what it is. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was great to come on. He is John Saylor. I'm Michelle Tafoya. This is Sideline Sanity. Don't forget, uh, more than ever, be brave and do good. Thanks for listening.